Hello and welcome. Today I'll be sharing an interview between Dr. Maxwell and Judith Todd. Judith was ordained in 1989, and she went on to pastor at Kentville Baptist Church, work with refugee families, and serve as a chaplain in several communities. Judith describes some of the challenges she faced as a woman entering into ministry, such as her experience at the examining council and the influence of those who encouraged her along the way. I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba on March 24th, 1943. So as we speak, I am 79. I grew up in the United Church and really never knew a Baptist. So the first Baptist I met actually was my husband. (laughs) And then we were married and came to live in Port Williams and attended the Port Williams Baptist Church. That was uh, not a big transition for me. I found the two denominations from a worshiping point of view not so very different. And the port was a welcoming community church, welcome to everybody. I guess I was in my early 40s, and I I felt a call to learn. So I just came to learn. I remember in one of Dr. Minton's classes, he was asking people what they felt called to, and they were going around the room, and people had all these wonderful answers. When it got to me, I thought, well, I have to say something. So I said, well, God hasn't told me that yet. And Dr. Minton said, that's perfectly fine. Those were the days when Baptists, a lot of Baptists, didn't believe women were called to ministry. So I didn't start out thinking that. Either my first or second year, uh, Dr. Minton was the principal, and I was on crutches. I had broken my foot. And he called me into his office and asked how it was for a, quote, mature student to be studying and how I was getting along. So we had a lovely chat, and then I realized it was coming to an end. He said, let us pray. I started to reach for my crutches when he said, let us pray, and I thought, oh yes, that's what we would do. So I bowed my head and he said, you lead. (sighs) And the thought that went through my mind was, well, if I can pray before God, I guess I can pray before Dr. Mitten. And that was something new for me. I remember sitting in maybe the second year I was here studying in Dr. McRae's office, and he said, you know, I think you I was just taking courses, right? I took them for credit because I knew myself I wouldn't do the work and the readings if it didn't have to. And he said, I think you should register for a degree. And I said, well, I might have to take courses I don't want to. And he said, precisely. And so... I trusted him. I registered for the degree. I don't remember the speaker, but he was someone who had come to Acadia on one of the conference times. He was at the door, and he put his hand out, and he was shaking hands with people, and he said to me, are you studying for ministry? Kind of the first person that I think addressed that as though I might be, and I said, yes. Still didn't intend on ordained ministry or didn't know what, but I remember at that point, understanding I was studying for ministry. I was actually working as a chaplain at Grandview Manor, and uh, my husband was a really wonderful musician, and he would, at worship, he would play the piano, and they loved, you know, having good accompaniment to the hymns. And one of them was heard to say, well, in our church, the minister plays the piano and his wife preaches. My role was rare enough that when I went to a pastor's couples conference, Daryl went to the flower arranging, good sport that he was, 
So students were sent to Grandview Manor, and so I worked with Dennis Vino in the clinical program with him and supervised the students that came. And I had a man almost in his 40s, I would say. He did not want to be supervised by a woman. And at lunch, when we were sitting there, if I spoke up to them, he turned his body away from me. And if one of the men spoke up afterwards, he would turn back. It was not a happy year. Took some of the joy out of it for me. I was still pretty new at doing this, and I would handle it much differently now. (laughs) I had three children and uh, a home to keep up, and so I took two or two and a half courses a year. So I was kind of, I was the old one here at the time. So I got to know some students, but not in the same way the other students got to know each other. And then of course every year you were saying goodbye to somebody that had graduated until I graduated. (laughs) Um, Graduated in 88. I'm not sure when it, the penny dropped that I would be ordained. There was always this, are we really called? I thought I was luckier than the men in many ways because you really had to examine whether you were called or not. Whereas some of the men I was studying with who didn't appear to me to be called at all, according to their gifts or their mannerisms or their general compassion, they hardly had to examine. They just had to say they were called and, well, they were. We women had to really examine the scriptures and think about what it meant. I was called by Kentville Baptist if I would be the interim associate minister. And I remember the I remember where I was standing when I got that phone call and I was really my heart so warmed. I, ordinarily I would think I would have said no. I was at Grandview Manor happily doing chaplaincy, but I said yes and I met with them and I loved it. I mostly did visitation and took part in worship. Reverend Quake did most of the preaching. But by in March, he got sick. And the deacons came to me and said, will you take over as interim senior pastor? Well, I was the one they knew now, you know. Churches don't much like change. And they were pretty close to calling someone. So I said yes. And I loved it. <laughs> I loved them. I was always anxious about preaching, but the more people seemed okay, the more I grew more confident about it. And then the person, whoever they were talking to, declined. So I took some time off in the summer and then started in the fall. So I was then going to examining council because I was actually doing this and everyone thought I should be ordained. I was really still a member of Port Williams because that's where I intended to go back to as soon as I was done my interim. And it was, so it was the Port Williams Church that applied for my ordination. The first person Port Williams ordained in their 121-year history. Since then, there are four of us that have been ordained by Port Williams, and three of us are women. But it was going to be held in Kentville Baptist. The ordination service would be, because I was there. I was their pastor there. So I went to council in August in Sackville of 89 and didn't have a happy time. (laughs) I was very anxious. In those days, you sat in a chair. Later on, they would let people bring notes in or bring something, their their statement of faith so they could refer. But there was the table and you sitting there feeling very exposed. 
It was a long examination. I remember I'd made notes that one of the questions was about you had to be the husband of one wife, and how did I feel about that passage? And I said, well, I've thought about that. All the other qualities are moral qualities that are listed in that passage. So I see that as them wanting a man who didn't have two or three wives, but had one wife. And then I said, of course, you will have some single men that you will be interviewing today. And I'm sure that you won't feel that applies to them either. They were quiet. Someone said, how does your husband feel about this? And I said, well, he happens to be sitting just two people down from you. You're welcome to ask him. And then someone else said, well, you'll be wanting part-time work. Well, apparently I had a bit of spunk by then because I said, well, you know, I've been studying and I've had a 20-hour job and I've kept my home and my children. So I think maybe just being in the church might be a piece of cake. (laughs) After I'd finished, they excused me from the room and we were out there a long time, 30, 40 minutes, and then they came Someone came out and said, you could come in. Well, by then I decided, well, we knew we had to have, everyone had to have two-thirds of the vote. And we knew there were people who came from associations that were told how to vote, and it was no if it was a woman. So you didn't have any, hardly any leeway. Um, And we just started in the room, and then they said, take her back out, take her back out. So we went back out, and we sat out there, the two of us on our own. And then they invited me back in and went up to the front and they said they were pleased to tell me that I had passed and I could care less. I was so, it meant, I don't mean that it didn't mean something. It had such a dark cloud over it for me. I, I felt I had been treated shabbily, to be honest. What I found out later was there had been six abstentions and one vote against me. So the question was, was it two thirds of everybody who was there or was it two-thirds of the people voting? And were abstentions to be counted as negative votes? So apparently they had gone off and they'd looked up. Nobody told us this while we were waiting. I, I guess, fair enough, they didn't know what they were doing either and they hadn't faced that question before. So in the end, I passed by one vote. But after that, there were three more women after me and they announced that abstentions would be counted as negative votes. I journaled a lot about feeling that dark cloud over me. Maybe I thought a little too highly of myself because I knew that some men that later didn't do so well in ministry, they sailed right through. And it's that sense that people are looking at you and just because of your gender, you're less than. You're not worthy of. My understanding was that some people saw ministry in a power um, module. You were in charge. And I think there's a difference between power and authority. You are given authority to carry out the task to which you've been called, but you're not to exert power over people. The congregation, especially in Baptist churches, you know, has a say and we work together as a team and you do your job and you want them to be doing what they're called to be doing as well. And although I think there were some men that genuinely searched the scriptures and believed that women shouldn't be in ministry, in my opinion, there were more of them that didn't think women should be in ministry that saw it as power because they let you do anything else. 
You could be the associate. You could teach children. You could go to the mission field and even preach if you were in some other place. That theology is pretty sparse when you kind of have those hedges around it. Anyway, yes, so I was ordained October 5th, 1989. And some busloads from Grandview Manor came, and the port people came. My family came from the West, and Kentville Baptist people came, and we had a really lovely celebration. The lovely thing about the Lord is he calls us where he wants us to be according to our personalities. And he opened the back door for me, interim, associate, part-time. I could do that. And then the church, they would like to call me as their senior pastor, and I said no. They came back in January and said that people in the church were writing them talked with them again and then I said well all right but I would need a 90% vote so in February they had the vote February 12 1990 they voted in church and Daryl and I went home and the deacon came to the door and he said I can tell you what the vote was 90% not 90.5 or 91 or 89 and I remember looking up and saying, I have nothing more to put out, to put in the way. So I became their senior pastor until spring of 96. So I was there really almost eight years. I, very quickly, I ended up with actually having ministry into the community as well. Although they had had most extraordinary pastors ahead of me, Byron and Ida, they never asked me to be them. They let me be myself. And I'm so grateful for that. And I had been taught at the college that it was a good idea to get out and get to know people and, you know, stop by some of the offices and see people. So I stopped by Family and Children's Services, which in those days was a private agency. Well, they thought there was things we could do together. So Kenville Baptist and Family and Children's Services started a family support center, which continues to this day. And the other thing that we did, and we did it, in conjunction with family and children's was to hold a community forum and the superintendent of schools he facilitated it and we invited like the police people in education people in medicine people in the town like the mayor we invited top people in all and they came we sent out an invitation we said what we were looking at doing is identifying the needs in the community and where the helps were because none of us knew. I was new, did, did the Lions Club provide glasses if children needed them? How would I know that, you know, unless we had some way of consolidating information? So we had at least three sessions at, at the church, and out of that came uh, a directory of, of help for every, all these agencies so that if they needed something, they knew where to call. If I had someone that was abused, who do I call? What, what person especially would, was good at that? Or if they needed counseling beyond what I could do, where did I, who did I contact? So it was a big help for all of us. And one of the men at the church who was unemployed at the time, he took it on as a volunteer position and he gathered all this. He was brilliant at it. So I really got to know the community. 
we did things together, the, the priest in the Catholic Church uh, and the Anglican Church and the Salvation Army and myself. We got together once a month and it was great because, you know, you, lots of things you couldn't talk about to someone in your own church because personalities were involved and so we had a good, a good fellowship. Well, I was the only woman, but that didn't matter to the rest of them. Then, especially at, well, at both Advent and Holy Week, we had ecumenical services. I remember walking down the aisle at the Catholic Church beside Father Saunier. Before we started, he said, no one would have believed this a few years ago. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it that we were all followers of Jesus. And that was what mattered. They were good years. I left in April of 96 to the surprise of most people, personal reasons for leaving. And so we got a call to go to Bermuda and we went for four months. And again, I was anxious about what did I know about the culture and the ways, but they were lovely. And it was a mixed um, black and white. I loved it. And they were so good. It was small. They had had a pastor that had kind of divided them. Some pastors have a way of dividing people into us and them. I think any of us could end up doing that without noticing it. So I want to notice that I, if I'm doing it, that I stop doing it. So we had a wonderful time. We went, the first time we went, it was really hot. Daryl fell asleep. <laughs> and I remember the lady saying, oh, look at the poor dear, he's tired. And I thought, hey, honey. <laughs> I'm the one that's working. <laughs> Not an unhappy moment there. I loved it. I loved them. I came back and did um, six months of an interim chaplaincy at Valley Regional Hospital. I, I wasn't trained for it. I did the best I could. I was really asked specifically to help mend bridges between chaplaincy and staff because the, a well-meaning person who had been there ahead of me came with a, a different culture, a city culture, and started going in and making changes right away. And they were not happy. And chaplaincy was, had just got started. He was the first one there. And so I did do that. I did mend relationships. The staff welcomed me and supported me. But it was lonely. You're kind of there by yourself, and sort of the people that might have included me to be part of, like at lunch, come sit with us, didn't. So it was the loneliness, the not being fully trained for that, and the fact that I would go into a room and they were gone. They'd gone home, fortunately, or they had died. And that's not what pastoral ministry is like. You get to know your people and you follow them along. and. It wasn't for me, but Heather McGregor, she took on the chaplaincy and she was trained and wonderful, a wonderful chaplain, exactly what they needed. And then we went back to the Port Church. During those years, I was on the Board of Ministerial Standards. I did quite a bit of convention work. And then Harry and I, Harry Gardner, with others, we worked on ethics, a code of ethics, and uh, protocols around developing fair protocols around accusations, I guess, of professional misconduct. 
how to treat everybody fairly. It became quite a document, and then we worked on restoration, sometimes restoration to ministry, but at least restoration, that you didn't just leave somebody who had been disciplined out in the wilderness somewhere that you had a process in place to help them find their way, restoring them to God, to their families, probably not to the church where they had offended, but perhaps in some cases, and it was in some cases, back into ministry elsewhere. I was still there when Daryl left in 06, because I remember having to tell the committee and, and offering to resign, because perhaps they didn't, but they did not accept the resignations. I was on my own when I got into um, refugee work. It began with taking um, Jane Gomez into my home. Um, and that happened because Wilma Jansen was the chaplain in Burnside, and Jane's baby had died, and she and her partner were arrested and jailed. They were from Bangladesh. And Jane said to Wilma one day, nobody knows what it's like to have lost a child. And Wilma said, well, I know someone who does. Would you like to talk to her? And so I went. Because I was a pastor, you see, I got to be in a, not behind the glass, but in a room with two chairs. And I heard the doors locking and locking. And then this tiny little woman comes through the door and into my arms. I visited again several times. Then in the spring, when she was going to court, I went. I said, I'll be there. So when you look down, you'll know somebody. And then at one point, they were, they had dropped the major charges against her. She was going to be released if she had someone to sign to be a surety. So I signed for her. So then she came to live with me for almost two years. We formed Friends of Jane, about 15 women who raised money to get her back into university. She was international, it was double the fees. Um, Acadia gave some, some well-meaning, well-to-do woman in Halifax paid for one of her years. We never knew who, but Jane wrote her a letter. And then the Syrian, you know, uh, refugees were on the news. And about when the Syrians arrived, there was an Afghan journalist, Habib Zahori, who fled across the border into New Brunswick. And through an interesting way, he he came to live with me as well for a while. And he is now in Ottawa. He's a permanent resident. He's married and has a child. And so I'm Grandma Judith there. I did see myself as a feminist. I was an advocate for women. I saw that there was a private place in the church where women who had suffered abuse, sexual abuse, could come. There was an excellent counselor in the medical profession, um, and she would come and we provided that. Women would come and talk to me. Um, so did some men, but I believed firmly in human rights, women being amongst them. <laughs> And I wouldn't have been as radical as some were at the time. But as I've watched different movements come and go, I think you need the radicals out front. And then it evolves into something that becomes more encompassing of the middle group of people. I'm very grateful to God that he, that she, <laughs> pursued me and made the way 
a path I could take. The years when, the first two years at least that I was on my own were very hard. I'd never been on my own in my entire life. I stumbled along through grace without even always recognizing it. And yet, all the way along, the Lord kept giving me ministries, like with Jane or Habib or the Syrians. He kept filling my life with new life. And I see it all, even though I'm not the pastor in the church. For me, it was all ministry, just being me. <laughs> um, I am very happy to be Judith Todd. Thank you, Judith, for sharing your story with this project. If you've been enjoying Called to Serve, please rate and review the podcast. You can also follow Called to Serve on Facebook and Instagram and learn more about the project at calledtoserve.ca. Thanks for listening and see you next week.